please stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Please read with me the verses in bold. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it now, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thankful that you're joining us this morning. Um, yeah, it's exciting to be together and worship, and, and so excited this morning. Well, before the pandemic, as, uh, and, I, and I think that's something that we're going to say fairly often. It's like uh, what life was like before the pandemic. Uh, but before the pandemic, when we were actually able to go to a movie theater, uh, we were able to see movies in the movie theater. I went to see a mystery movie with my brother and my sister-in-law in Southern California. I wasn't sure at first, but it seemed like a better option than watching Frozen 2 <laughs> that my daughter and my nieces wanted to watch. Um, and so I said yes. We dropped them off at the adjacent theater and excitedly walked down to our own. The movie was about a detective enlisted to investigate the murder of an 85-year-old patriarch who had made his fortunes as a crime novelist, which then becomes a setting for his own murder in this wealthy but horribly dysfunctional family. Everyone in the, is a suspect in this whodunit mystery th uh, thriller now, I'm not about to spoil the movie or even as an advertisement to go watch it, but just as a, out of curiosity, anybody know what movie I'm talking about? Knives Out. All right, pretty good. Knives Out. Uh, Knives Out, I, I, I did go watch that. I, I think it came out in 2019. I mean, literally months before the pandemic, and I just happened to stumble upon it. Uh, but it's a mystery, uh, and it's actually a genre of, of movie that I love. It's, it's mystery uh, that I love watching. Uh, something about the suspense, 
something about the, the holding me captive until I find out what the answers are or who had committed the murder. Uh, mystery. Now, it's a word that Paul uses quite often. Now, if you could just imagine with me for a second. Now, in the New Testament alone, there are something like 27 occurrences of that particular word, mystery. And Paul uses it 21 times. When I look up that word in the dictionary, this is what I get. Number one, anything that is kept secret or remains unexplained or unknown. Two, any affair, thing, or person that represents uh, features or qualities so obscure as to arouse curiosity or speculation. Three, a novel, a short play, a story, a film whose plot involves a crime or other events that remain puzzling and unsettled until the very end. Number four, obscure, puzzling, or mysterious quality or character. And this fifth one, on which I'll stop, any truth that is unknowable except by divine revelation. Four times he uses that word mystery in this short context. We all read it together. In the first 13 verses, he uses it four times. How the mystery, it says in verse 3, was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. In verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. In verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And in verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone, that is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things. And so Paul's making a point, and he's trying to key us in on what this mystery is, and he's letting us know that there are, there are things that are hidden that have now become known. It seems to be a word that Paul loves. And again, depending on the context, the definition is slightly different. But the basic point that Paul makes refers to God's revelation or disclosure of something that was previously hidden. Something that was once concealed that has now been revealed. If there ever was an epic mystery thriller, it's this mystery that Paul talks about here. And it's ironic, I think, that Paul speaks openly about this secret. It's not a secret or privileged knowledge, just a, an elite few. It's not some secret handshake that we have to come to, have to know to understand what this is. But there is an unraveling. Everyone, everyone wants to know the answer to a mystery. Everyone wants the resolution to a mystery. And again, in this story, Paul is saying that that mystery that was once hidden and obscure and, and, uh, and undisclosed is now being revealed more and more to us. And Paul tells us that what's happening here is in redemptive history is that, again, this mystery is being made known to us by the apostles and the prophets. God has told them and has revealed it to them throughout the ages. 
Now again, Paul will begin a prayer in chapter 3, verse 14, just as he does at the end of chapter 1. He's going to pray, oh God, I'll pray that they will understand this stuff that I'm talking about. They'll comprehend this, this great mystery, such great truth, so life-changing, so revolutionary. He prays that the people of God would come to understand this. So what is this? Paul has already started talking about this in chapter 2, which Jeff Lynch preached so wonderfully last week. He did a fabulous job preaching on the fall of the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. I especially love the illustration that Jeff used last week about an only child who is the sole recipient of the love and care of the father. But one day his father brings home a dirty, smelly, foul-mouthed kid, and announces that he has adopted him and has proceeded to give him all the rights and privileges as his other son. And I love this beautiful picture of this mystery that Paul is speaking about. And so in chapter 3, he elaborates on this reconciliation that's taking place, and if I may say this morning, to further add to the illustration, the people of Israel saw themselves this way. They saw themselves as the only children, spoiled by their parents, the unconditional love of a parent towards their children. And I just wanted to let you know I have three kids and I love them equally, 33% each. <laughs> but if you are the sole child of, a, of parents, you have their undivided attention. And Paul He describes this reconciliation, and I think he talks about, again, this great mystery because the people of Israel saw themselves as the only recipients, as the chosen people of God, as those uh, dearly loved of the unconditional love of God. They saw themselves as clean-smelling, as law-abiding, as obedient children, perfect in every way, who could do no wrong. They found themselves as the recipients of God's good graces. And they saw their counterparts, which is anyone who is not a Jew, the Gentiles, as the dirty, smelly, foul-mouthed kid, who are the exact opposite undeserving. And Paul writes, this is the profound mystery. The mystery is that the Gentiles, and the key word here is fellow, says Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow recipients, fellow heirs of the kingdom of God. They are fellow members of the body. They are recipients of God's promises. And you may be asking, how is this a mystery? They understood, for example, that there was a Messiah who was coming. They did not fully understand the incarnation. The Old Testament saints did not understand that God would one day come and indwell every believer. But they would not fully understand it. 
Christ in you, the mystery. They knew that God's salvation would incorporate Gentiles, but they didn't understand the fullness of that truth. And so in the Old Testament, the Jews understood that the Gentiles would be saved. They understood that the Gentiles would participate in the kingdom. They understood that God had plans of grace towards them. For as long as they knew the Jews had been distinct. Again, here's the thing. I mean, they knew that they were the recipients. And they knew that somehow God would throw the Gentiles a bone. They understood a few things, but they did not understand everything fully. Because for the Jews, there were some real distinctives. There were some real things that separated them from others. There were some distinctions. They were distinct by virtue of their circumcision. They were distinct by virtue of a, of a relationship to the covenant and the promises. They were distinct by virtue of a diet and, and ceremony of cleanliness. They were distinct in terms of clothing and and in terms of land, they were distinct in terms of religion. They were distinct in terms of food and, and cooking. They were distinct in terms of history. They were distinct, they thought, in every way possible. They were not like them. So much so that Jews would say, those dogs. For the Jew, there was a distinction and so they thought God would give grace upon grace to Jews and yet somehow had Gentiles in this, this plan, but perhaps maybe just a little bit less. The distinction had been there. And now God comes in, sets aside the national entity as a witness, and he fuses Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity that is to be his new source of testimony, and God will use this mystery. It's the church. This church that is the bride of Christ, this beautiful picture of the bride of Christ becoming the witness of the faithfulness of God. Not that the church would be faithful, but that God would be faithful to her despite it. See, the old way was that Israel was to serve as a witness. They were called to be the vine. If you remember the Old Testament, uh, there were a few occasions where, where God would describe Israel as the vine on which the nations of the world would nourish. Genesis 12, we know that passage where the people of Israel were to be blessed so that the nations would be blessed through them. But as you and I know, they never lived up to their calling. You see, that would be the mystery. What would be the mystery is that the people of God never understood that Jew and Gentile, again, here's the mystery, that they would be one, literally be one, that there would be no difference between the two, that the wall of hostility would be eliminated, there would be no distinction between the two, and that they would be equal before God, and that they could not understand. In verse 6, he says, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that's the heart of this thing. We are one in Christ with Christ. We are one in Christ with all those who are in Christ, so that the Jew and Gentile 
slave and free, male and female, Greek and barbarian, are all one in Jesus Christ. There is no national or racial distinctions. Now let me clarify. When I say no distinction, it does not mean that there is no uniqueness to the way God created us. I'm happy and I'm proud to be a Korean American. I was born in Korea, came when I was six years old. And by the time I was 11 or 12, I can't remember exactly, I changed my name. And to my horror, I found out that Daniel is my, not my name. It's, not, it's nowhere on my, uh, my immigration papers, on my, um, on my naturalization, naturalization papers. I'm gonna reveal it right now. My name is Timothy, and I did not know that. <laughs> Just until I think last year. No distinction does not mean that we are colorblind. No distinction does not mean that we do not see color. No distinction does not mean ambiguity to our identity, that God made some mistake when he made us. It does not mean that there is no uniqueness to our personality. When Paul writes that there is no distinction, he's not saying that there is not a special identity to which he created us. Our unique history, the places we were born, the experiences that we've had. God is not saying, I'm erasing all of that and so that we're all the same, that we're all the bland sameness. But what he says when he says uh, no distinction it means that in the sight of God that we are all equal and we share in the same rights and we share in the same privileges. Whether you're adopted or you're the firstborn in that family, we share in the same inheritance. And, and Paul writes to our amazement, this profound mystery that there is no distinction That a Gentile, who are once regarded, as, as it says in chapter 2, who are once far off, have been brought near. That those who were, had never known the mysteries of grace have been drawn near just the same. That Gentiles are the same and, and equal standing before God. When Paul writes that there is no distinction He's not saying that you cannot look at your race or your ethnicity or your experiences. But he's saying you can't use those as a way of power over another person. That our ethnicity or our background or our experiences, these things don't give us a one up with one another. What the Bible tells us is that we were all sinners, we were all people destined for wrath. And, and Paul so beautifully and eloquently, eloquently states in, in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved. And the power of the gospel, again here, he's I think speaking to both the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's saying, for the Jew, 
you were brought to the cross of Christ in the exact same way. You were brought to the, to the favor of God in the exact same way. You could not live up to your calling. And so Jesus Christ comes, yes, for the Jew and also for the Gentile. I declare now to you an open secret that Gentiles by faith in Jesus Christ are going to be joint heirs, joint members, joint recipients of the promise of God to Abraham. And believing Jews and believing Gentiles together worship the same and the one true God because of the one who has fulfilled the ceremonial law has not only reconciled them to God, but amen, he has reconciled us to one another. This is the profound mystery. And Paul has been saying it all along, and he's making this claim in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, this vertical relationship between us and God has been reconciled. We who were once sinners are now friends of God. Those who were once enemies of God have now befriended God because of Christ. That we who were once far off, those who had not known mercy, know the mercy of God. And he's, in essence, saying, how can this relationship not affect this one? The vertical one between us and God, this amazing reconciling ordeal and transaction between us and God, that God would save us despite our sins. How in the world not affect our horizontal relationships. This is the profound mystery. And this was confounding to the people of Israel. They knew that the Gentiles in one way or another would share in their inheritance, but was perplexed that they would be co-heirs, equal recipients. That doesn't make any sense. They thought, I get first dibs. Or I get the better half. Or I get, I get a little bit more. I get to be the gatekeeper of God's good graces and God's favor. I get to determine what you deserve or not. But my friends, you and I both know that that isn't grace. When I determine... And fun fact, this ideology creeps into all of our theology. No matter how long I've been a Christian, no matter how long I've been walking with Christ, this creeps into my theology. And it confronts me when I, when I look at my wife, when I deal with my children, my neighbors, my community. It creeps into the theology of, I think I'm a little bit better. But God's grace in the gospel is a precious, undeserved gift. 
Paul was so moved by God's grace and saving him that he just can't stop repeating himself in verse 2. He says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me to give to you. Or in verse 7 of chapter 3, he says, of which I was made a minister, a servant, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Or in verse 8, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable, the immeasurable, the unspeakable riches of God's grace, of his riches in Christ. He just couldn't get over the fact that he had been saved. You know what's fascinating? As I was studying this passage, and looking at different names of the Bible, there's different name changes that happen in Scripture. There are some that, become, uh, that start off small and become great. You know, there's guys like Abram who goes from exalted father to Abraham, father of multitudes. Or look at the name of Jacob who is a supplanter, a deceiver, he, who grabs the heel. And God changes his name to Israel, one who struggles and contends for the faith. One who is a fighter of God. And I look at Paul's name, and I just, this is not something that I had, I had known. I, I think I came upon this recently, but God changes uh, Saul's name, uh, Paul's name, from Saul to Paul. And if you know Saul of the Old Testament, he was this great king, the first king of Israel. He was a, a head and shoulders, a taller and, and mightier than everyone around him. He was a visibly different. There, he was distinct from all the others where it was easy to say that that's the next king of Israel. And what's strange is that Saul's name is changed from, from this great Saul, big Saul, to little Paul. Paul means small. And I find it fascinating that, again, here, Paul says the least of these. I'm the least of these. The least of all the saints, it says in verse 8. The greatest of sinners. And here, Paul, he's using his name to say something big about this gospel that's been given to him, entrusted to him to give to us. His name literally means small and not by accident. The Apostle Paul, chosen by God and then gifted by God to be an apostle, his job was to take what God had given him and to make it known to everyone. He was the beggar telling other beggars where to find food. He had come across something significant and wanted to make sure that nobody missed out. And he's telling us this great gift is the mystery of the church. The greatest mysteries that God reveals in the New Testament is the mystery of the church that is this body, a new thing, the church, Jew and Gentile alike, one in Jesus Christ. You and I both know that our Human birth determines our racial distinctions, but our spiritual birth unites us. You and I, if we profess the same Christ, you and I are siblings. You and I are co-heirs. You and I are part of the same body of Jesus Christ. And this 
is the great mystery. You and I may not look alike, talk alike, smell alike, but you and I have the same blood of Christ generating through our veins. You know, the Lord has a, spe- uh, a, a deep and special relationship with his church. And by that, I'm not talking about the structure. I'm not talking about this building, 1972. <laughs> or the organization, uh, Grace Sacramental, or the denomination to which we, we belong. I'm talking about the real church of Jesus, the body of blood-bought believers of Jesus. Christ loves the church, and the church is a very, very special, very special place, and that's why the New Testament goes to such great lengths to present the identity and the uniqueness of the whole theology of the church, and then calls us to behave in a, in a manner worthy of that calling, consistent with the definition. And so in verse 10, Paul writes that the Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The church, the manifold wisdom of God. The gospel message of reconciliation was proclaimed so that each of us, together as the body of Christ, the church, that you and I would display the manifold wisdom of God. This is so that the wisdom of God might be displayed. We are displaying God's vast wisdom to all creation. And God is saying that it is the bride of Christ that will be a witness of the faithfulness, this mystery of Christ. I found this quote, and I want to read it for you. Prejudice, bitterness, segregation, hatred, disturbance, hurt, anger, division, rage between people. The rage in the hearts of husbands and wives, children and parents, students and teachers, neighborhoods, Our neighbors and workmen, races and religions, denominations and organizations, neighborhoods and nations, divisions in all its forms, various forms, is one of the greatest problems confronting the world. It is the most serious problem confronting men, for as long as men are divided from God and from each other, there is no hope of man's ever being reconciled to God. God's eternal purpose has been to create a new body of people, a people who will love Him and love each other supremely. And note... This is what is known as the great mystery of Christ. This is a mystery beyond natural knowledge. It is open to us by divine revelation to the Holy Spirit. This mystery is that we have been united with Christ and with each other. Because it says in 1 John 1, verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? A wonder and joy in our life that he has reconciled us to him and one another. Our reconciliation to each other will be the witness of the power of the gospel and the mystery of the church.